Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to How to Exit. Today we're here with Mark Ackler. He is the founding partner at Math Venture Partners, which is a venture capitalist group, right? Yeah, yeah, we invest in early stage technology companies. Awesome. That's really cool. So what got you into that space? Kind of, I always like to start off with origin. So I was reading on your profile, you started Alpha, but give us your origin story. How did you get into this? How did you go get into the VC world? Yeah, so I always caution you, be careful asking an old guy who has adult ADD. My joke is, I think I've had a very fun and eclectic career, and my wife thinks I can't hold a job. (laughs) My dad and I started one of the very first computer retail stores in the country in 1980. So we were an Apple and IBM, independent IBM store when IBM first came out. And a couple of years go by, and some good buddies of mine at Apple recruited me, to, and I ended up being the worldwide introduction manager for the Apple IIc. This is a long, long time ago. This is 1983, and I helped introduce the, one of the original Apple IIs, the Apple IIc. Came back to Chicago because my wife is from Chicago. We just had our 40th wedding anniversary. Wow. And she said, if you want to stay married to me, I'm going to be in Chicago where my family is, as right. Family comes first. So I moved back to Chicago and we, I became an entrepreneur. And so I started in 1986, we started this uh, uh, company that built the first object oriented programming language for a personal computer. It's the second product ever for Microsoft Windows. I was the early guy. We built that up. We took in venture capital back in uh, 1987, when I think maybe there were 20 VC firms in the entire country. Built that up, sold it to Symantec, had a second company. The second company failed miserably. It was an educational software company. We were way too early. My third company, I got very lucky. We were a, a game development tools company, and I started this company in... August, and we sold it in May. We had a bidding war between Intel and Sega and IBM. And at the very last second, Bill Gates brokered a deal between us and SoftBank. And we were SoftBank's second acquisition in the United States. This is in 1995. And I got to that point where I had the freedom and the flexibility sort of to chart my own course. I started off life as a high school history teacher. And I had this vision, this passion that I love teaching, I love kids. And I thought whenever I got to that place where I had a little bit of freedom, 
I'd go back and teach. And I got to that point and I did some soul searching and I realized what I was really good at and what I really passionate about was help was being an entrepreneur and helping entrepreneurs. And I felt that the best way to leverage my experience and my capital was across multiple companies, not just one company at a time. And so I started my first venture capital fund. And in the late 1990s, 96, 97, 98, it was a lot of fun. We had some companies go public. It was the dot-com days. Life was good. And then, of course, the shoe <laughs> dropped. And this is actually a really interesting story. We raised our second fund in January. We closed our second fund in January of 2000. Of course, the dot-com crash happened in March. And we did it a couple years. We deployed about half of our capital. And we just realized it was brutal. It was just like, it was a great time to be an investor. And I'm going to come back to today. There's some parallels to today. Because the entrepreneurs who survived were actually real entrepreneurs. They were real business people. They knew how to do more with less. The great survived. Valuations were significantly better. Terms were better for investors. But if you didn't have enough capital to see your companies through to the other side, you were just going to get wiped out. And we went back to our LPs, our investors, and we said, we don't believe in the model. We don't think it's working. We're going to do something very unheard of. We released our LPs of half of their commitments, and we stopped taking fees. And it would have been really easy. It would have just easy to milk it and to just kept on going and kept on taking fees. And I ended up sitting on some boards for another 11, 12 years without any compensation because it was the right thing to do for our investors, for our LOPs. So then after that, I started my fourth company, ended up being my most successful company. I was a co-founder of a healthcare company that ended up doing very, very well. And then I took a job. I was, I was 50 years old, and a good buddy of mine was the CEO of Redbox. And it was just starting to take off. And he asked me to help him grow and scale the business. And I became the chief innovation officer for Redbox. I have some great stories about that. Literally, we took the company from startup to over $2.5 billion in revenue in about five years. That's impressive. Crazy growth. And then I also became the interim chief marketing officer for the company. And then it had run its course. And I started my next venture capital fund, Math Venture Partners, with a good buddy of mine. And so I've had this really wild and eclectic career. I'm also a professor at Northwestern at their Kellogg, their MBA school, their Kellogg School of Management. I've been doing that for 10 years, and I love it. The reason why we're talking is I wrote a book called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Business. And so I'm happy to talk to you about whatever interests you. Let's talk about like the exit process. Our audience is primarily buying, building, and exiting companies. And you have some unique experiences. It sounds like out of all those, has any of your projects went public? Yeah, a couple. And I've been, um, as a CEO, I have sold some companies. As a venture capitalist, I have invested in over 100 companies, set on dozens of boards, and have had many companies go through transactions. And I'm saying this with humility. I felt like I had a pretty good handle 
on the whole process. And then we had something happen. There's an entrepreneur, my co-author of this book, a guy named Merta Sherry, was selling his business. And while we weren't an investor, I was his mentor. I was his go-to coach. I was the guy at 10 o'clock at night talking him off the ceiling when things went bad. There's always, in any transaction, there's always moments. And it's an emotional journey, right? There's an emotional arc. And there's always moments in time where things are looking pretty tense. And he had a successful transaction. He sold it to S.C. Johnson, big giant company. And a couple of days after the transaction, we're having breakfast. And Merritt is just bitching. I just like, rah, 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 rah. It was a really tough transaction. And I said, Merritt, it's like, dude, one, let's celebrate. It should be joyful. You just spent 10 years of your life. You just had a great transaction. And I said, I understand it could have gone better. But in the spirit of giving back, in the spirit of helping, why don't you write it all down while it's still raw, while it's still fresh, right? And the next time S.C. Johnson buys, in this case, it was a tech, a software company. It was a tech company. And S.C. Johnson, they could buy CPG companies all day long. They could buy supply chain and warehouses. No problem. But it was the first time they had really bought a tech company. And there's some nuances there. And I said, so the next time S.C. Johnson buys a tech company, now that you're on the inside, you can say, hey, guys, this is what I experienced. Here's how we can make the process better. And out poured, <laughs> out vomited 10 pages. just like, And I looked at it and I went, huh, all entrepreneurs, all business owners, we spend so much of our time building our businesses, raising money if you have to raise money, and a very relatively short amount of time in the exit process. And most people, especially if they haven't done it before, there's a lot of real wisdom out there and best practices. And so we decided to, to write a book to give back. And in that journey, we interviewed dozens of CEOs, big companies, medium-sized companies, small companies. And we said to them, all right, tell us the real stuff. Like, tell us, if you had a, an adult child who was selling a company, what would you tell them? Like, what are those hard lessons learned? We got some great stories, good stories and bad stories, but we got some, a lot of wisdom. And I'm a big believer in empathy. So we talked to all the stakeholders. We talked to bankers. We talked to M&A attorneys who specialize and focus in transactions. And we asked them, tell us some examples of great transactions and why, what made it such a good transaction. Tell us some examples of transactions that fail. And many transactions fail post-transaction. And like what makes a good client and why? What is it about them? Because you've worked with many CEOs, some of them you love and some of them you would never work with again. Like and why? What are the attributes? And then most importantly, we talk to the heads of corp dev. So I come from a technical world. So I went to Google and Apple and Meta and Amazon and Twitch and like 30 different companies. And I talked to their corp dev people. And I said, what do you wish CEOs knew before they came to talk to you? 
and like give us examples of good transactions and why. Give us examples of transactions that didn't work and why. And I thought, because I'd gone through this many times as a board member, as an investor, as a CEO, I thought like I had a good handle on it. And I have to tell you, I learned so much. It was really a joy. I had so much fun writing this book. What were some of the common threads? I mean, I know they're in the book, but give everybody a teaser on the book. What were some of the common threads for the good, the good transactions and the bad transactions? Well, we came up with this acronym we call FAIR. And FAIR stands, like everybody wants a FAIR deal, right? So FAIR stands for FIT, as in cultural fit, alignment, alignment not only internally amongst all your stakeholders, but the acquiring company, making sure that all the stakeholders in the acquiring company are aligned on this transaction. We talk about a lot about why transactions don't happen, and alignment's a big piece of it. Integration, like integration is the ugly stepchild. Everybody says, yeah, yeah, we'll worry about integration after the transaction. So we, we have a lot to talk about in terms of integration. And most importantly, rationale. And the rationale is why is one plus one equal 100? Like, can you explain why this transaction makes sense in simple enough terms that even your grandmother would understand it? And coming up with, and I have all sorts of great examples of rationale. So fit, alignment, integration, rationale, fair. That's sort of the, the framework we used. So inside of that framework, is there some things that are just like huge red flags that things aren't going to work? Yeah, let's go through each one of them. So fit, cultural fit. As you know, having worked in multiple companies, every company has a different value system. Every company has a different way of treating customers. The question is, when decisions are made, what is the decision-making process of how do decisions get made? Is it top-down authoritarian? Is it kumbaya, we're going to do it together? And oftentimes, especially in the world I come from, which is more the technology world, early, smaller startup companies oftentimes have a very, very different culture than the much larger established corporate entities in terms of decision-making, speed. And so the way we summarize it is, imagine you're on an a long airplane ride and you're sitting next to the person you're going to have to be working with. After the end of five hours, are you energized or you just can't wait to get off the plane and get away from the guy? Is there a good cultural fit? That's one. The second is alignment. And what I mean by that is on your side, there's lots of stakeholders. If you have a board of directors, sometimes it's you're a sole owner. But if you have a board of directors, is your board of directors all aligned about what you're trying to do? Oftentimes different investors or classes of investors have different motivations or different time frames or time horizons. So how do you build alignment among your investor group, amongst your board, amongst your partners, if you have partner, or your key managers? Sometimes we can talk about transparency. When do you talk to people? When do you talk to your team? 
about a potential, we can talk about that. But how do you build alignment? And oftentimes, too, we've seen transactions where there's a champion from the acquiring company who really wants to get this deal done. And you as the CEO, you think, yeah, I've got this champion. He's got my back. He's that champion or she, that champion is going to circle the wagons and make sure that this deal gets done. And many times the CFO is not aligned with the VP of sales. The CEO isn't on board or the CEO wants to do it, but the board of directors doesn't want to do it. Or like making sure one of the themes that we talked about in the book, a great CEO knows when to delegate because you can't scale a business without hiring the best people and delegating. But there's some things you just can't delegate. You can't, you like, you want to hire the very best M&A attorney you possibly can, somebody who really knows the ins and outs. Like, you don't want to hire your uncle, like you, who's a nice guy, good business attorney, but not an M&A attorney, right? You want right. to hire the expert. And I'll use that as an example. Even when you hire the expert who's going to give you their best advice, ultimately, it's up to the CEO. It's your call, your judgment to give instructions to. It's the same thing when with alignment. Yes, you have to trust your champion who's the person taking point on the other side. But you, as the CEO, it's your job to also make sure and double-check and build relationships outside of your champion to make sure everybody in the organization is aligned. The next thing is integration. So I said it was the ugly stepchild. Nobody likes to talk about integration. But once again, in my world, oftentimes transactions have a future component to it. Earnouts, right? And those earnouts are oftentimes pretty material. And once you, once that transaction's done, you're not in control. Like you have no, you're not in control of budget. You're not in control of hiring and resources. You're not in control of integrating with the sales force of the acquiring company. There's all these things that you, in order for that earnout to happen, you're going to need the acquiring company to fulfill the promises that they made. And so what I say to entrepreneurs, before the transaction's done, even before the term sheet is done, because the term sheet is often one page or two pages, very simple. It's just basically the headline. The headline is, we're going to buy you for X. But if the integration plan is not written, articulated, and put down in writing, then you're putting at risk that component of the earnout if there's an earnout to the transaction. And I also believe that CEOs are, I believe in servant leadership. So I, I believe a CEO has a greater calling. The CEO's job is more than just to make as much money as possible for the CEO or to make as much money as possible for all shareholders, as important as that is. But as a servant leader, your job is to make sure that your employees are well taken care of, that your customers are well taken care of, right? That an integration piece of it. So I think of it as, I think of life as a much longer time horizon. I think in terms of decades, not moments in time. So 
if a transaction is a moment in time, I want to know what happens post-transaction. And the question I ask CEOs is, if you're an entrepreneur, chances are you're going to do more than one company. And the question is, will your employees come, will your management team, will your employees come to work for your next, for you in your next company? Will your investors want to give you money for your next company? Right? Will your customers stay loyal to you? And so legacy matters. And then the last piece of it is rationale. And Ron, I know I'm talking too much. So no, you're sorry. not. Absolutely not. Right. So let me give you a couple stories of rationale that I think your listeners will really enjoy. So what I mean by rationale, when people sell businesses, most 99% of the time, the rationale is looking backwards. And what I mean by that is, here's our financials. This is what we did in revenue. This is what we did in EBITDA. This is our profitability. And you're going to give me a multiple off of a historic number. And maybe it depends on the industry, depends on the business, and whatever that multiple is. But that's looking backwards. Looking forwards, what I want to know is if I take my product or my customer base and I put it into your product and your company, what's going to happen? Like, why are you doing this? Am I plugging a hole in your product line? And like, is that going to improve? If I take my product and sell it into your customer base, are my sales going to go up? If I plug a hole in your product line, is that going to improve? Here's what businesses care about. They care about new customers, acquiring new customers. They care about upselling existing customers more product services. And they really care about retention. And so am I going to improve any of those categories, particularly retention in my world, the technology world? And that's what I want, I want to know about the future. Let me give you two stories. Okay. My partner at Math Venture Partners, a guy named Troy Hennikoff. Troy is a great guy. We've been friends for 20 years. I was his lead investor. He was the CEO of a company called Sure Payroll. And I was the lead investor and chairman of the board of that company. And we had a great outcome. We worked through lots of ups and downs together. We really got the measure of one another. And Troy, when he started off in life, his very first company was a little dev shop, was a little development tool, a little bit development company. And he got to about a million in revenue. And he did a project for Hyatt. It was a inventory management asset tracking product project, and he retained the intellectual property rights for it. And he went to Medline, Medline, the big hospital supply company, and he wanted to do some programming work for them to do this inventory management system. And Medline said, yeah, we want that, but we want to buy you. And Troy went, no, I'm not for sale. I have a great little company. I'm really happy. No, thank you. And they said, okay, we'll give you $2 million. We'll give you 2X top line revenue, which was crazy because usually it's for a services company. It was right. nuts. And this was in like in 1991. And Troy went, no, thank you. That's great. Anyway, they come back a week later. They say, no, we really want to buy you. And they offer him $3 million. He goes, no, like, I'm not interested. Finally, they come back a week later and they offer him $5 million for a $1 million services company. And Troy's thinking, 
well, all right, <laughs> like, like, fine. Like I'm the smartest human being on the planet. Okay, if you like done. But he never asked them why. Why would you overpay that much money? Do you know why? So Medline at the time they had a one year contract with their hospitals that they supplied. And they said to their hospitals, look, we have this inventory management system. It's great. We'll give it to you for free if instead of a one-year contract, you sign a three-year contract. Do you know that in the first year, they'd signed up over $100 million of incremental revenue off of that little inventory management software? Yeah, it offered them an ability to scale that they didn't have. And can you, I mean, first of all, what's the multiple of Medline? What's that worth? And that was just year one. What about mm -hmm. year two, year three, year four? Like they probably, Troy could have probably sold that for a hundred million dollars and they would have paid it because he didn't understand the rationale. He didn't ask the question, well, why are you wanting to buy this? How are you going to use it? Right. The same thing could be said for a more popular story would be Pinterest. When Mark Zuckerberg bought Pinterest for just under a billion dollars in 2012, everybody thought he was insane. It's like, you're crazy. Why? I'm sorry. I said Pinterest. I didn't mean Pinterest. I meant Instagram. Sorry about that. So I had a brain fart. So Instagram, like, why would you pay? This is a company with almost zero revenue. But the rationale, like today, Instagram did over $20 billion of EBITDA for Meta. What nobody understood was two things. One, you take the user base, the customer base of Instagram, and you put it against the sales force of Meta, like magic. And at the time, Meta was very heavily into desktop, but not mobile. And Instagram was all mobile. And Instagram was the engine that got Facebook into mobile. And so strategically, it was incredibly important and relevant. Right? So that's the rationale. How is one plus one equal 100? I got it. I got it. So uh, when you're out there looking at deals and you're looking at things to fund, how do you identify something that has that type of potential? Like this could be a game changer for this industry, right? You're looking, I call it unicorn hunting. We don't do that a lot in our space. We're looking for brick and mortar, steady income. Most of us in this space, we have some money to invest, but not at the grand scale you have. So we can't spread it across the hundred companies. We got to pick one. And the reason we pick one that's already generating revenue and profits and stuff is because it's ours to screw up, not ours to grow and create something out of it. It already has product market fit. It already is making money. And I jokingly say it's ours to screw up as opposed to ours to try to figure out. That said, what are some of the key things? I know there's a gut feel. I know there's got, there's some instinct because you've been doing this around. You can tell the founders have, but there's, I call it the founder's edge because I've been around it, right? I've been interviewed. I came from the tech world. I've interviewed in front of, you were talking about company cultures earlier. I've interviewed at one of the biggest antivirus, I won't say who it is. And it's not Symantec, but one of the other, one of the guys was head to head with them. One of the big computer security companies walked in there. I was interviewing with one of the top guys, won't say his name. He had a change of clothes hanging up in a zipper bag on a coat hanger and a sleeping bag on the floor. And so I asked him, I said, what happened? He goes, sometimes we just get into things and we have to be, we're here, you're going to be here for two to three days at a time sometimes. We just get into working on things and we work in long as we're awake. And the way he approached it, I was like, yeah, this ain't for me. 
I turn around within a few weeks, I go down and I interview for, uh, I got an offer to go to, I'll talk to you a little bit about this before the show, I got an offer to go to Excite. Well, I walk, doing the tour, walking through Excite, I've seen sleeping bags underneath people's desks, but i also seen full-blown liquor cabinets up, and the <laughs> Excite was a different you know, culture, it's a different environment. They had keggers on Fridays, like, at least once or twice a month, everybody had a liquor, liquor cabinet at their desk, for after hours, of course. And it was it kind of set the thing. There was a guy there that worked there that drove the shaggy Scooby-Doo van, right? One or two of the buildings had the kids' slides to go from the second floor to the first. So you could leave a meeting and get in a big plastic swirly slide and go down to the, the next floor to, to get yeah. you to your next meeting faster. It was just a fun, different type of culture, right? So the difference is, hey, you're going to have to sleep here sometimes. And we're, I hate to use this word phrase because it's kind of crude, but balls to the wall all the time sure. is one thing. But you go to the next one, and are like, yeah, we do that. We celebrate our wins. We have fun, too. Right? And I wasn't even a big drinker. I just love the fact that they worked hard and they played hard. Well, culture is really important. Actually, one of the classes I teach at Northwestern is called Building Innovation Teams and Culture. Yeah. Like, it, it is, I think it's really essential. I think it's a really important. If you're going to spend as much time as we do in our work, it's, it, the culture should, you should be comfortable in the culture. And I also have... And once again, sorry for the language. I have a no assholes rule. It's just yeah. like life is just too short to deal with people you don't share values with. Yeah. It's just, I, it's never worth it. As an investor, and mm -hmm. I talk to four or five entrepreneurs every day, mm -hmm. if you are running a technology company and you do not have a technology background, you better damn well learn. Because how else are you, I can't tell you, there's financial debt and there's technology debt. And I can't tell you in my world, how many non-technology entrepreneurs made really bad decisions because they didn't understand. Well, in this case, we were not only an email com company, we sold to other email companies. So when he goes on a sales call or a sales call wants to talk to the CEO, they're running multi-million user email systems. And if he doesn't understand that, he's just, he's an alien in a conversation. He should just be a Martian that doesn't understand the language, right? And he just didn't get that. I told him, most of the people you're going to talk to can't do what I just did and explain this down at a user level, right? Most of these guys are just going to expect you to understand what SMTP is and all the different protocols and how they work and the fact that you're a man in the middle, like we're, we're doing an interaction. We basically, our tool got in the middle of that exchange, that protocol, right? And it was anti-spam, anti-virus type of thing. And we were looking for certain things inside of that exchange. But anyway, he just didn't get it. And he didn't stay around long. He was an interim CEO. But I was like, going back to just having conversations in the end, spoken things. He had been there for two months and nobody had told him this, right? And he called me in the office because like, hey, I kind of need to learn this. Can you explain how it works? And then he didn't get it and he put it on me. <laughs> I was like, yeah, the unspoken thing here is we all know you don't get email right now, all right? And it's, it's hurting you. Yeah, of course. No, you did the right thing. You did the right thing for him, whether or not he appreciated it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And that's not the only time. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm an entrepreneur and I'm, I make a really horrible employee, right? It doesn't bother me a bit to tell you what's going on. I'm the same way. There's a VC called Brad Feld, famous guy, really good guy, and a friend. And he has a saying, which I really like, which is brutal honesty delivered kindly. Yeah, I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. I'll try to be nice about it, but I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. 
It's interesting as well. I had a little startup that failed miserably. You're talking about one of your startups that failed miserably. I started an, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the show. <laughs> I started an online dating service that I put a ton of my own money into. And I thought I created something that the market needed and there was no product market fit. It was called honestyfirst.com. I got featured in the Wall Street Journal. I did some other stuff. We were keeping people. We did background checks. That's why it got featured. We were doing full loan for security reasons. We kept people honest in their profiles too, though. We had a weighted algorithm that would check. And basically, it was a survey system that would two or three people would end up going on dates with the same people. They would survey them. They would check the honesty of their profile, right? They said they were a blonde, but two guys said, no, nah, I seen the roots, right? That type of thing. More superficial. I mean, less superficial than that. Problem is that I learned fairly quickly that there's a chicken and egg problem inside of the dating sites things, meaning that nobody wants to be the first lonely soul in a in a dating site, <laughs> right? You know, it's interesting. Everybody talks about product market fit. I actually think it's much more nuanced than that. So I think product is table stakes. Like you have to have just world class great product, but I call it PBC. So product business model and customer acquisition. So I have a saying, which is the greatest product in the world without customers is a great product. It's not a business. And so many entrepreneurs, they focus on solving the problem. They build, theoretically, a great product, but they don't understand sales. They don't understand customer acquisition. They don't understand the nuances of a business model. And I'll give you an example of business model. Everybody understands watching a movie. Well, the course of 100 years, we went from watching a movie, it's the same thing, watching a movie. We watched it in a movie theater, and then television came along, and we watched movies on television, and then cable came along, then HBO came along, and VHS, and now all of a sudden, you could rent a movie instead of going to a movie theater, and then DVDs came along, and oh, you could buy a movie, and then Netflix came along, and you could get a movie on a DVD through the mail, and Redbox came along, and now you could rent it in, in front of your grocery store, and now we stream. It's the same thing. It's watching a movie. But the business model has changed dramatically over time, right? And like, I'll give, you a very, I'll give your listeners a very simple example. When Blockbuster was around, and we rented movies from Blockbuster, there was a fee to rent a movie. And then there was a late fee. And everybody hated the late fee. Like, it was just, ah, late fee. And then Redbox came along and we said, you know what? It's a dollar a day. Now it's two bucks a day or whatever it is. But when we first started, it was a dollar a day. It's a dollar a day. There's no late fees. Keep it as many days as you want to. It's on you. It's a buck a day. That difference, that's the difference in the business model. Like, mm -hmm. That's the nuance, right? We made basically the same amount of money that Blockbuster made, but instead of three ninety five and a late fee, it was a buck a day. It's on you. So business model matters. And at the end of the day, customer acquisition is like the, it's all about leverage in the sales model. And when I invest, I look for entrepreneurs who not only can build a great product, but know how to sell it. 
It's interesting. As we were talking about brutal honesty, so I went out and pitched the VCs to raise money to market. I built the thing on my dime and one investor, two investors, smaller ones, but mostly my dime. So I spent a year and a half, two years and like I had a full-blown team in India, like 26 people. We were writing code, right? We got the thing up and running, proof of market. We got a few friends of mine that to use it. They liked it, dozens, not hundreds. And then I went the VC route to raise money to take it to market. And they were basically, it was interesting enough, I got the audience. I got to do the pitch, which that's a step, right? Because a lot of times you just don't get that even. Problem was, is a Harmony had just received like $100, $110 million in funding, and they're like, we just don't want to go against that. <laughs> and the second thing was, is one of the guys was really brutally honest with me. He's like, number one, I don't think anybody wants to be kept honest within their profile. I was joking. My pitch was I solved the Mr. Potato Head problem or the Mrs. Potato Head problem. You show up on a date and it kind of looks like the person you were going to go there. But uh, they're like, nobody, it sounds, what do you call it? What's the word I'm looking for? idealistic. It sounds like something everybody would want, but in honesty, he goes, I just don't think people really want to be kept honest in their profiles. They're lying for a reason, right? And uh, That's so interesting. One of my investment thesis is about trust. I believe there's a deficit of trust in the world, and I think people really do appreciate trust. But it's, really, it's interesting. I'll use Redbox as an example. When we went to launch Redbox, we did all sorts of surveys and customer intercepts and user focus groups. And we said, what do you want? And their context was Blockbuster. And so they went, we want choice. Like the number one thing they said is we want every movie ever made. We want choice because that's sort of what they were, how they were, I guess that was the Blockbuster model. But it turns out we had real data from Blockbuster and over 90% of the rentals were from the 30-day wall, the brand new releases. Even though they thought they wanted choice, their actions were different. And I think the VC who gave you that feedback, the insight is oftentimes, even when they believe it, even when they say, I want integrity, like I want, in this case, want to know the person is who they say they're going to be, their actions might be different than even what they think. He had better insight than I had known. When he said it to me, I didn't realize he was an early investor, a couple of other bigger dating sites. He had insight that I didn't know. He said, and the second thing he said to me is, you don't really have a business yet because you don't have any customers, but you have a product here. Why don't you go pitch the big guys? And if they turn you away, there's a reason because they, they've been doing this for a while. And some things happened in my life. Actually, my mom had passed away of a heart attack and I was oh, looking at right. some changes like, do I need to move back to Oklahoma at this point to be close to my father? And this is before he, he got sick. I told you I moved there for him. There was about an 18 month period between those two. And I started kind of shutting things down because I was traveling back and forth dealing with that. And it gave me time to think, right? And in that thought process, like I reached out, I can't say who because NDAs and stuff. Let's just say I reached out to one of the top four, three of the, I reached out to three of the top four. One of them entertained me with a conversation. One of them, two of them did. One of them gave me a phone call and the other one actually, I went out because when I was back here, I went out to their site, sat down with their product development team, told them what I'd built, offered to sell them stuff as because we had a patent pending on some of the algorithms and stuff anyway offered to sell them what we were building or become part of them and help them integrate it into theirs and they said we wanted to hear this from him we wanted to tell you this because that vc he told me they told me so the vc that's how i found out he had insights into this he told us about what you did and said i just wanted to look you straight in the eyes and tell you that we looked at this three years ago and we surveyed our customers and stuff and we honestly don't think our customers would they think we'd run from it right 
anything we've ever put in place to install integrity into the you know, what people are saying about themselves in these profiles has backfired on us. They just don't want it. And then hearing it from them, I was like, wow. <laughs> it was a very, very valuable lesson to learn in that process. But the, the unspoken gorilla in the room, I'm positive later on that I had two or three of my developers because I brought in some people who had worked on those other companies. They knew, right? They actually they told me later, it's like, yeah, I was there at so-and-so company when we shot this idea down, but I wanted to see if you could pull it off. I was like, and you didn't tell me? Yeah. Uh, well, most companies fail. And there's a reason why most companies fail. So let's get back to the exit side of things because we're off on this little tangent here, but it's beneficial to everybody. But on the exit side of things, as a venture capitalist, how do you know or what's the indicators that something should be sold to a strategic partner, like sold into a Google, sold into a big guy as a strategic purchase, sold to a big holding company or taken public? Is there some indicator as far as how it's structured or the trajectory of it that tells you, man, this probably should be an IPO versus I'm going to sell this to one of the big dogs? We could spend hours talking about that. <laughs> but sort of the, the gross generality is, first of all, 99.9% .9 of all companies do, are not even remotely capable of going public. Very, very few companies go public. Mm -hmm. like, if you think about the number of companies that get started versus the number of companies who ultimately go public, that path is very, very slim. And going public, there are pros and cons. So it is not a panacea. First of all, once you're public, you're now subject to public scrutiny. And the level of transparency and regulation that sits on top of publicly traded companies is a check and balance, but it's also a burden for sure. And it also limits, it starts to focus companies on the short term, on the quarter, and less gives less flexibility for longer term. It takes some courageous CEOs who are willing to focus their company's resources on a longer term vision and not just make the quarter. There's benefits to a publicly traded company as well. And so in terms of liquidity, in terms of valuation, but at the end of the day, the real question, going back to the concept of servant leadership, which is what is the best home for my employees, my product, my customers? Like, where is that going to flourish and live? And what kind of resources? As companies get to that stage, growth companies get to that stage where they actually have the choice, they have the flexibility, then the question really becomes more of what would happen if we have more resources? Can we take this company to a next level? And then what are the pros and cons to those different paths? And if you have investors, those investors probably been with you for a while. If you're big enough to even consider going public, chances are you have investors and chances are they've been there for many years. And when you take other people's money, you're also taking our agenda. And our agenda is really clear. It's like, we want to make X return in Y number of years. And so the longer a company goes, the more pressure starts to build for when are we going to have a liquidation event? I got it. It's, I, 
somehow it's been ingrained in the entrepreneur dream that every one of us wants to take a company public someday, right? That is like the envision for everybody who wears the hat of entrepreneur. And I don't think it's logical. It's not. I mean, there are some cases where going public makes complete sense in terms of providing liquidity, in terms of valuation, in terms of the revenue that you can drive, the money you can raise to support your future goals and dreams. But in most cases, going public is not the end-all, be-all. And I know many a CEO who had that dream, who became CEOs of publicly traded companies, and who just hated it. Just like hated not only the regulatory, the reporting, but also how it reshaped their actions going forward and limited in some ways their scope and focused their scope much more on the short term. In my mind, I would I don't care if a company is making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. The day I take a company public, the day I, the only reason I would take a company public is when I'm ready to be done with it. And the reason I think the public market has a, a severe flaw, and I'm going to share this with you because I really want your opinion on that. When you take a couple company public, I don't care if it's a, they're producing a billion dollars a year, it's about growth. You can't set stagnant on the open market as a public company. And it's to me that is absolutely idiotic. A company's chunking out a billion dollars a year. Now, there's companies out there chunking out a billion dollars a year in profit. And if they don't have an increase quarter over quarter, their stock price suffers. Why can't it just be a perpetual money machine? Why can't they just do what they do well without always having to be increasing and improving, increasing? And the reason is the way the stock market's made. People buy in at X, they expect it to increase, right? I think there's an inherent flaw in publicly traded companies in that people are coming in at your peak level and expecting you to improve. Yeah, I agree. Completely agree. There is value for sure, but yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> I would not sign up for that. It's a tough gig. I have a lot of respect for CEOs of publicly traded companies. I just do because I get the pressure they're under, like constant, constant, constant improvement. I mean, Honestly, it's the reason why a lot of acquisitions and mergers even exist, right? Some of these companies are forced to have to constantly buy other stuff just to show they're growth. growing. Yeah. And, you know, activist shareholders. And it's just, anyway, what else can I share with you? Okay. Tell me what else is in that book? Because we're going to promote the book here in a second. We're going to tell people, what are you investing in currently? So somebody's got a business out there and they're chugging along and they're doing really well and they're looking for venture capitalists and stuff. How do people work with you? What do you invest in and what are you looking for inside of Inverse? Math Venture Partners, we invest in early stage software companies. So we're typically the first check. We're the, not the pre-seed, product is built, there's customers, we're the first real institutional check. We're looking for companies. We're mostly B2B, business to business as opposed to business to consumer. And at the end of the day, our investment thesis is we love entrepreneurs who have an unfair advantage in customer acquisition, who not only can build a great product, but who know how to sell that product. It's really important to us. But unfortunately, we just this year decided not to raise our third fund. And we are no longer making any new investments. We haven't talked about Silicon Valley Bank and what's happened in the last week and continuing to happen. But the fundraising market for in the venture capital world 
is really tightened up in the past year. And what happened over the last couple of days is only going to make it harder. And I think it's going to be pretty brutal for the next year or two and for entrepreneurs. And I just put a, a technology entrepreneurs. And I just put a link, a LinkedIn post saying, right now, today, this very moment, you should, the world just changed. And if you're an entrepreneur who thinks your business model is dependent on raising your next round of funding, like that world, that ship just passed. And unless, I mean, monster companies with great growth are always going to, great companies will always get funding and bad companies won't, but good companies, good companies with solid growth are going to have trouble raising their next round. Or if they do raise their next round, it's going to be at significant discounts to previous rounds. And so my advice to entrepreneurs, to most entrepreneurs, is that if you're if you have a business that's not profitable, and like you should be in control of your own financial destiny, and you should not be dependent on raising capital to get to the next step, at least for the next year or two, because that the capital markets just they were hard last year, they'll be way harder this year. I think it'll actually, uh, and during tough times, great companies are created. There'll be people out there. They'll switch back to the minimum viable product. There'll be still entrepreneurs. They're still going to get their stuff done, but they're going to get to revenue faster. They're going to, I just told you what I thought the flaw in the publicly traded market was. I think the flaw in the VC funding world, and I'm not going to pick you on here. I think the VC funding guys give the entrepreneurs way too much leeway on how much money they pump into something before they ever hit revenue. Absolutely insane. Insane. It just drove me crazy. Like I always say to entrepreneurs, we're the best place to raise money. Your customers. Yep, exactly. And the venture model before the last year, it was the greater fool theory, which was VCs were pumping in all this money because money was cheap and they weren't caring about valuations and all they cared about was growth without understanding the business fundamentals it was like a it was a the greater fool theory because it didn't matter what where you put the money in because the next person down the line was going to give you a higher valuation it was a house of cards it was a really bad model <laughs> and it just like it drove me insane well that's going to be corrected if the market <laughs> continues doing it right now we've got a correction at hand so yeah, for sure. For All right. Sure. Well, we're right about that might be a good spot to do the recap. If somebody could remember three things from you today, that just from the show today, what would you want their three takeaways to be? Well, from the book, from Exit Right, I would say the FAIR framework, mm-hmm. fit, alignment, integration, rationale. Think in terms of legacy. Think in terms of long-term and relationships. I don't like people or... I say I like people. People who view life through the lens of a zero-sum game are people I tend to stay away from. And so life is not, like, it's not a zero-sum game. Relationships matter over time. Integrity matters. And we didn't get to this, but I also believe in this concept of an annual exit talk. Most entrepreneurs, if they have, a, if they have investors and a board of directors, most entrepreneurs don't like to talk about exits because there's a stigma, they're afraid that the entrepreneur, their board members will think their heart's not in it. 
And we think just the opposite. We think that it's really important to have an annual conversation about where you are, where everybody else is, build alignment, talk about who are likely acquirers, why would they acquire you, what are you trying to optimize for? And so those are the three things I would focus on. Absolutely. And then uh, where can somebody, we'll put the link to your book in the show notes and stuff, but where can somebody get the book? Amazon, and any bookstore, Amazon. And it's, the book is called Exit Right. Okay. We'll get that linked up inside of the show notes so people can have that. And then if somebody wants to ask you a question, work with you, show yeah. you something, what's the best way for people to contact you? Are you active on LinkedIn? or I am. Yeah. LinkedIn's great. And my email is my name. It's M-A-R-K-A-C-H-L-E-R at gmail.com. So cool. either one. LinkedIn is probably the best. Okay. Well, I thank you for being on the show today. Hang out for a second afterwards, and I'll call that a show. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Ron. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now